My collaborator for this episode of Everything is Workable is Adrienne Marie Brown, a fellow polymath who describes herself as a writer, facilitator, coach, mentor, mediator, pleasure activist, sci-fi scholar, doula, healer, tarot reader, witch, cheerleader, singer, philosopher, and queer, black, multiracial lover of life. I learned about Adrienne and her book, Emergent Strategy, thanks to Tada Hozumi, a previous guest on the show, and I am so grateful for that recommendation. Seriously, this book has had a significant impact on my life. I would be hard-pressed to think of anyone who would not benefit from reading it. This is a book of universal wisdom, as Adrienne points out when she says, I didn't create Emergent Strategy. I noticed it. But what makes it so incredible is the accessible and practical presentation of what emergent strategy is and how to use it. From adaptation to collaboration, creativity to self-care, and abundance to liberation. Adrian and I talk about the tools, framework, and spells that we can use as interconnected beings to imagine into being a future in which the fullness of humanity is represented and in right relationship with our shared planet. Everything is Workable is a completely independent, passion-driven project, which is only possible thanks to the support of patrons. If you listen right through to the end of the show, you can find out how you can become a patron and support it and make it more sustainable. And now, Adrienne Marie Brown and her incredible insights and shared wisdom. How are you? I'm really well. How are you doing? I'm good. All right. Well, thank you so much for collaborating on an episode of Everything is Workable. And uh, I always start off by asking my guests to speak a bit about their background and what brought them to the work that they're doing. So like, what is your social restoration or movement work origin story? Um, I grew up as a military brat or military child of a black southerner and a white southerner who fell in love in the 70s, mid-70s in South Carolina. And so sort of the origin stories, I think, to my work, one is that I have parents who transcended the boundaries that they had been taught in order to find love with each other. And two, that I grew up in a constant or near constant state of adaptation, that I was moving every two to three years. And as a young person having to you know, regularly figure out how was I going to land in this place and get along with people and not be bullied too hard or teased too much. Um, so that those are two pieces I think that have really shaped like a lot of my work, which is um, I think a lot about black liberation and what, what aspects of race, how the aspects of race that are construct can really get internalized in us and how we can advance beyond those, um, but also how love can guide us in some of that healing work, both amongst Black people and with, with other communities. Um, and then I'm constantly thinking about adaptation and getting in right relationship with change with an understanding that, you know, we are not in charge. <laughs> um, 
And as a young person, it was like that, you know, I'm not in charge of these moves. My parents are going to make these moves. I've got to just figure it out. And I think as a, as a grown up, you know, I regularly am like, Oh, every time I think I'm in charge of anything, the universe sets me right by, you know, giving me another change, another unexpected thing to adapt to. And I think as movements right now, particularly it feels like, Oh, we don't have control. We don't have the power. How do we keep our community safe? How do we keep our children safe? How do we keep our planet safe? And the answer is always adaptation. So those are some, some things I think that sort of started me on this path. So you're the author of the amazing pithy book, Emergent Strategy, which I, I'm letting you know, I've told basically everyone I talk to since I finished reading it that they need to read it. <laughs> Thank you. That's the main way that the book has spread. You know, I, I, it's been out a little over a year now, uh, like a year and a few months. And I'm laughing, you know, a lot these days because I'm just like the book every single month, the book is selling more and more and more. It's going further and further. And it's mostly word of mouth. I've never really done any promotion for the book, but everyone who reads it then turns around and does some promotion. And I feel like that's been such a, a blessing and also an indicator like I told people I didn't create emergent strategy I noticed it and pointed out to other people like look you know this this really cool world is showing us some really cool things and it feels like that shows out in how people respond to it because I think most people respond to it not like whoa you know you you changed my mind but more like whoa you said what I was feeling and thinking and wanting to say and wanting to do and that feels really exciting to me. There's like just a ton of people who are like, yeah, this is the way I already felt that I just needed more permission. So it's been, it's been a great year. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely like, that was my feeling like, from a Buddhist perspective. I was like, Oh wow, this is emptiness teachings, but in completely different language. Uh huh. Uh huh. That was great. And oh, I don't know. It's just, it's really pithy. It's so pithy. <laughs> Um, and like when I describe it to people and I'm sharing it with people, I'm saying like, it, this is a guide for how to live the futures that we imagine as possible and how to create entirely new, previously uncreated and unimagined futures through collective action and awareness of interconnectedness. Like this is a Dharma uh -huh. text. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, it's, it's, I really, I didn't set out to necessarily write a Dharma text, but I definitely wanted something that was accessible to people, like mm -hmm. that you could read it. You know, I kept timing it. So as I was writing it, I kept timing, like, okay, how's, how long is it taking me to read it? And it takes about three hours to read if you're going to read it in one sitting. And that felt important to me, that it was something that it wasn't going to take a lot of time because I wanted to write it for people who I know don't necessarily have a lot of time because, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about my own organizing life and my own, you know, just like, oh, what do I feel is actually available to me? And a lot of times it's like, you know, that scarcity, we get, we get taught that scarcity. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted the book to feel like a spacious book, but also to feel like I'm not wasting any time here. If you like the ideas, read it again. <laughs> um, but if you, if it's not working for you, I also tell people even shorter, like if you're just like, I'm not really going to read a book then you can read pages 15, 41, and 42. And that kind of sums up the whole book. And then the rest of it is kind of like, you know, fleshing it out, deepening into different lessons. But you can really get a lot of it from, from those places. <laughs> yeah, I, I took so many notes and I found myself when I'm going through it, there was 
thinking about it from the perspective of like, oh, it'd be really cool to do a collaboration of everything is workable and what would I talk about and like ask you about in that. And then also in the work that I do with the, the Buddhist community that I'm involved in and like how do we create practices and, and training practices where we are using these principles of emergent strategy, where we're using the more constructive language because I feel like emptiness uh-huh. a lot of time revert to like very destructive language and like uh-huh. like why do you think that is um I think that um a lot of it is the way that the teachings have been handed down so so uh-huh. much of what I understand about emptiness is trying to connect with the absolute and so doing things like oh I can sit in meditation and try to find gender like oh uh-huh. i can't actually find femaleness or womanness or whatever and and there's there's this idea that oh if you can't find it then ha you've solved that problem but uh-huh. like you can't have the absolute without the relative so it's like it doesn't matter that i can't find gender right. um, it still affects my experience of the world and i still experience discrimination because of it right, so, right. <laughs> what i found with right. the strategy language was that it it's so engaging, like it's an engagement language and it demands engagement. Yeah. Well, I like that because I, I feel like there's so much of it that came out of doing the, doing the kind of organizing that I was doing and feeling like I didn't want to ever be manipulating people. And I also didn't want to be persisting the constructs, you know, like just being like, well, no matter how free I feel on any given day, I'm always a victim of life. I'm always an oppressed person. And I, I felt like, how can we move people to a different perspective to that, to see like that sense of constant victimhood, that sense of powerlessness, that sense of an identity of oppression is something that's been constructed by oppression, constructed by those who wish to oppress us. And it serves them. And in some ways, it, you know, we can get tricked into letting it serve us as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the place where I've been like, you know, it's been one of the most challenging places to think in my own life because I, def- I definitely went through a period of like, well, because of my oppression, everything is owed to me. And I, you know, like, I'm like, I don't, I don't need to do anything. Like everything is owed to me because so much harm has been done to me and to my people ancestrally. And something else started to move through that was just like, that's, that's actually not how the world works. Suffering is not even that linear. Like there is a massive cost to oppression, but it's mostly the cost of having caused oppression, having given oppression to others and what that does to the soul. And there was something in that shift for me that was like, oh, how do I, how do I write about this? How do I think about this? And how do we heal the part of ourselves that buys into and thinks that only leaning into the oppression identities is going to get us liberated, right? Mm -hmm. And not leaning into the solidarities that we have discovered, not leaning into all the technologies we've come up for survival, right? I live in Detroit and I tell people I came here on purpose. This is the city that I I really want to live in and that I think has so much to teach us right now. But this is a city in part why I'm here is because it's like we, this is a survivor city. This is a thriving city. This is a city where people said we will make a way out of no way. And that way will be a communal way. Like we'll make a way together and we won't be um, hindered by someone else's narratives of what the city can be and who it should serve. Uh, We're gonna actually pay attention to who's rooted here and keep nourishing those people. And all of that to me feels very radical in this time when so much around, you know, who gets to survive and and who has value is financial, you know, is determined by capitalism, is determined by 
patriarchy is determined by these other larger systems. It's like, oh, to be in a place that's like, we're going to figure out our own values and determine our own, our own courses forward. All of that feels really right to me um, and radical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, making me think of like very early on in emergent strategy, where you write that if you want to see these radical shifts, then you have to lead not from right to left or from minority to majority, but from spirit towards liberation. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that that's one of the things. And, you know, there's another piece that I, I think is one of the oldest concepts maybe that I've, I've come across, but it seems to be one of the hardest to internalize. And I, I still struggle with it. But this idea of relinquishing enemies, because I think that that right to left, especially right now where, you know, I just saw another video posted today that was just like radical right-wing conservative people spewing so much hatred towards folks who are like, we believe in having a free and open media, you know, stuff is like, oh, this just feels like a very basic thing. And why is it causing such, such vitriol? But it also feels like, well, this is part of the problem is that because we're caught in such a like pendulum swing and that the pendulum swing is the only way people understand how change can happen. It's like, we're either on, we're either winning or we're losing, losing, you know, Mm -hmm. we're either moving this way or moving the pendulum one way or just swinging it back the other way. And it just feels like so repetitive and exhausting and not actually getting us free. And so there is something around like, what does it mean to relinquish the idea of enemy to recognize that we live on a, a very specific planet, a specific place in a specific time. And that there's a way to be in right relationship with it. And we're, it's, it's unclear, like, how do we do that? But to me, it's like, first, we have to acknowledge that that is actually our condition. We are not in a condition where we can just write off or try to hold down some portion of society. We actually have to constantly be moving for transformation. It's the mm-hmm. only way. Yeah. And well, and recognizing how those systems are replicated in that behavior, um, regardless of what side of the political spectrum someone's on, that sort of thing. It's like you you also say destroying a person doesn't destroy all the systems that allow harmful people to do harm. And exactly. that, that makes me think of like, there's a teaching that Angel Kyoto Williams gave recently where she says like, we tear down the individual, but the culture remains unscathed. So it's yes, not seeing the larger cultural conditioning that's operating and yeah. making room for people to grow and change and learn. Yeah. And I love that because it really is, you know, shifting from an individualist perspective to a systemic perspective, which also I think really helps in interpersonal conflict moments around this stuff. Like when you're like, I've got to confront racism one-on-one, it's so much more helpful when you can say that behavior is racist rather than you are racist. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think when you say you are racist, a person is racist, then it makes it seem as if that person has made some choice. And a lot of times, I think what we are doing is reaching people who, who didn't actually have a choice, who got socialized into a worldview and a way of being. And by the time they're getting a choice, they're also getting completely attacked for whatever orientation they were set on. And so, so much of my, my work has been like, oh, how do, we, how do we start to say, we recognize that your orientation has been towards hatred. We want to get curious about why that's happened. We want to understand and deconstruct what systems get benefit from you hating me as a, as a starting point and then reorient. And so much of the way I think of emergent strategy is like a reorientation. It's like, well, if this is how I got structured, if this is what I got set up to move towards, then what would I, how would I opt into something else? And what do I need to practice? If I've been practicing racism or internalized racism, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what, a lot, you know, for me, I grew up like, oh, I'm, you know, <laughs> um, I'm inferior because I'm not a white person. Like for that to get inside my system, I have to really be intentional about practicing not my superiority, but my worth, my innate, you know, innate self-worth. I have to mm-hmm. practice that. I have to practice it every day for a long time in order to rewire um, what's gotten constructed inside of me until I believe it. And I think the key there is like wanting to believe it and not needing to bring anyone else down in order for me to feel my full worth, you know, not needing to take space from someone else in order for me to have my own space. And that's where this idea of like abundant, abundant justice, abundant liberation, abundant attention has been entering my work lately that it's just been so deep to me how much we're oriented towards scarcity. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're just like, there's not enough justice for everyone. We have to compete with each other for the small resource of attention that we can get, for the small resource of justice we can get. We have to be in these fights in a, in a competitive way all the time. And I'm like, none of us get ahead that way. Where we do see ourselves be able to move ahead is when groups throw their weight and their attention and their resources behind each other appropriately as needed. And, you know, I've seen that with the immigration movement, you know, where folks from Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives have been turning and saying, we see that y'all are really under attack right now. We're going to throw our weight behind your fight and show up for you. Or Standing Rock, you know, folks being like, we're going to come and we're going to show up for Indigenous folks who are on these front lines right now. And that in that way, we begin to make enough when it doesn't seem like there is enough. Yeah, that's definitely a shift that I've seen. And like in my little circle of spiritual kin, we have these conversations about collaborative competition where you like compete to actually uplift one another to collectively improve. I I love like you talk about collaborative ideation. And I feel like that's pointing to the same thing Uh, and, and letting go of inner specialness. And like, again, it's it's the overwhelming feeling of there's so many causes. And I think that there's a mentality that I am starting to see shift, but there was a mentality of like, what's the most important cause we have to focus on instead of going like, actually, it's really good that there's lots of folks focusing on a breadth of causes because it does uplift all of us. It's true. It's so true. And I think that collaborative ideation is one of the practices we can be in that helps it go really deeply inside. That's like, Oh, like, Somewhere along the line, I learned that I should come up with an idea and then compete with everyone for that to be the best idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was laughing because I, I met with a bunch of educators the other day. They were part of uh, the RIDA Institute, People in Education puts on here in Detroit. And we were talking about how folks don't even realize that they're doing it. They'll come in and they'll be like, I say I'm collaborating and I'm trying to collaborate. I think I'm collaborating, but secretly deep inside, <laughs> there's still a part of me that's like, uh, my idea is the best idea. Uh-huh. And, you know, sort of orienting around, like, how can I get people to recognize that in some way? And so it's really, it's a deeply humbling thing to, to sort of submit and be like, it might not be, it just might not be, or it might be a temporary great thing. You know, like I have this moment, um, I have this moment often with emergent strategy, actually, where I'll come across something that I feel like you know, I'm like, oh, this person articulated this idea much better than I did, <laughs> you know, or I'll come across and it's like, this idea is so old. And, you know, I really feel so important to me that people don't think that I'm ever taking, taking credit for these ideas because they've been around since the beginning of time. They're, to me, they're just true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a, some, I, I don't even, I very rarely am like in a space to even get in a debate about it. Cause I'm just like, this is just true. And I, we've noticed these things that are true it's not about arguing whether they're true or not, but rather arguing, can we get into right practice or not? 
so yeah, I, <laughs> you know, that piece around like, oh, I will collaborate at that, at the point of my ideas. Yeah, well, and again, it's the um, the adaptation piece that you talked about at the beginning, and and the things that realizing that um, that collaborative piece, the adaptation piece, that's all unlearning capitalism, unlearning patriarchy. It's unlearning those things, those messages that we've been given, and how we internalize them. Like <clears throat> you, you talk about liberating ourselves from critique, and that being something that you see happening a lot, especially in social restoration and movement circles. And I think about Rebecca Solnit's quote, where she says that we make perfect the enemy of good. Yeah. Uh, and then we yeah. can't make change because, again, there's like that fighting of uh, and, and how that's still perpetuating the same, the very same things that we're saying we're supposed to be moving against. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I noticed this also lately in our movements as a lot of new people are flooding into the spaces and, and being like, okay, I'm waking up and I'm here and I, I want to show up. And we have a sort of standard that is unspoken, but shows up where we're just like, kind of like, well, fuck you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> we're like, you're late, you know, whatever took you so long is unacceptable and you don't have an appropriate framework on feminism or whatever the issue happens to be. And there's just such a rejection because the person did not show up perfectly as we wanted them to. And a lot of it, you know, in order to hold that view, you really have to forget how you entered into movement because so few people are born, you know, just yeah. radical with a perfect analysis or whatever. And I have never seen a perfect analysis. I love instead what Grace Lee Boggs taught me and taught a lot of others around dialectical humanism and this idea that if we are human beings and in right relationship to change, then our opinions will have to change over time. Because we will keep learning and we will come into ideas that we could not have imagined and that did not come from us. And in the face of those ideas or in the face of changing circumstances, if we don't change, we become stagnant and we become irrelevant. Um, and I love that idea of, of, oh, to stay relevant, I actually have to be paying attention and growing and changing. You also talk about creating futures in which everyone doesn't have to be the same kind of person, which really, mm -hmm. again, speaks to that. And that makes me think of one of my favorite emptiness teachings ever that comes from Zenju Earthland Manuel, where she says there's multiplicity in oneness. And mm. um, her book, The Way of Tenderness, I just think is like one of, it's yes. one of, like emergent strategy in the way of tenderness. I'm like, whoo <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Made in heaven there. <laughs> Totally is. And, and so I think like that's such an important message of saying like oneness doesn't mean sameness and humanity, like what we're trying to do with the kind of movement work that we see is to be all encompassing. Right. I mean, I think of it as ecosystemic, you know, it's like looking at it as, oh, I am, I am of an ecosystem and ecosystems thrive when they're biodiverse. And so how can I make room for the true diversity of other people and you know i think a lot of times when we think about diversity it's been it's been um it's been muted in some ways right it's like oh just have a lot of different people there but not necessarily have their differences there like there's a way that we go for the tokenized version of diversity yeah but i think of it as, as like ticking boxes versus actual yeah, representation exactly it's like oh i've got a quota there's a black person here boom um <laughs> instead of you know, what I see in nature, which is like, there's a true, like, not only should you be exactly what you are and I'll be exactly what I am, but we're going to be interdependent with each other. There's ways that our work will serve each other. 
a bird will eat something, eat a worm or something up above and drop down edgings of it that will get, you know, swallowed up by some fungus and turned into some mold and turned into a life form. Like there's such a, a way of interacting amongst the difference and a value. It's like, oh, this difference is like how we're all surviving that I feel like doesn't get valued and doesn't even get valued in our, in our personal relationships, much less our political or cross-cultural relationships. You know, I often will like with my, my sweetheart have to sort of be like, Oh, we are very different. And like say it out loud to myself Mm -hmm. or say it out loud to them. Like we are very different. That is our strength here. And Mm -hmm. if we, if we lean away from that difference, it's going to be harder for us to move forward in our strengths. But if we lean into it, we both get to experience something that's much further, um, much further along in sort of our human experience than either of us would come up with our, on our own. Oh, I appreciate that so much. And that's something I definitely have come to understand in the relationship that I have with my wife. And that, um, like, again, it's we have this cultural idea that knowing people is somehow a really, really valuable thing. And like, it's great when you can say, like, I know everything about you, but I feel like that's actually very restrictive of a person and doesn't yes. allow for the fullness of them. I agree. I agree. So just being able to to let people be different, to let people mess up, <laughs> to remember how we messed up <laughs> as a way of letting people mess up. Yeah, um, and just like that we're never not going to be messing up. So it's just so, you know, it's like if we are alive, we're going to be making mistakes probably on a daily basis. And that's where the interesting stuff will happen, you know, that the failures are where the lessons come. You know, I really deeply believe that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to talk to you, see you about self-care. It's a common topic. <laughs> Everybody huh. I have on everything is workable. It's pretty regular. I particularly want to talk about the very pithy statement that you made where you said about adaptation reduces exhaustion. So coming back to that adaptation piece, there's so many folks who are stuck in doing things the way that they've always been done to their own detriment or, or yeah. just like having an idea of... Um, uh, I don't know, sort of legacy that kind yeah. of taps us in things. So could you share some examples of adaptations that you've made in order to reduce exhaustion? Yeah. Um, I would say one is that after doing facilitation for many, many years, I got to a place where like I had more requests, like incoming requests than I could actually meet you know, like in 365 days of a year. And I was really getting stressed on like how to respond to these needs um, and also how to spread the love, you know, like how to mm-hmm. make sure that I'm, um, that other facilitators and other folks are, are getting these requests. And so for a while I was just like trying to just say no, right? Like I'll just say no. And it wasn't working. And I realized that it was because my no was not really rooted in a yes. Like it was just rooted in like, I'm overwhelmed, no. Instead of like, well, what is it I really want to be saying yes to? And mm-hmm. what is my capacity to say yes to that? And how do I, how can I focus in that way? And what I realized is I wanted to say yes to Black liberation work. That was the thing that was the most exciting to me and felt most relevant for my people in this time. And for as long, as far back as I can imagine. So I, I said that was my focus. And so instead of saying no, it was a focusing, right? It was like, I'm not just saying no to you for some selfish reason or to protect myself, but it's, I'm saying no to things that do not center black liberation or are not led by black leaders in order to say yes to those black leaders. And 
you know, the adaptation came with some adjustments, right? Like there were financial adjustments, there were timing adjustments. A lot of the leaders that I was most interested in serving are working so fast and so hard that a lot of the work would be like much more last minute, you know, Mm -hmm. like we didn't plan this five months ahead of time right now. We're having this meeting. Can you come and just being more available for that and just continuously saying yes to that black liberation work. So that was a major adaptation that I made. And I'm actually in the midst of making another one now, which is after, Oh, 20 something years of doing facilitation work. I am, going to take a year away from actually facilitating myself for the most part. And I'm going to just do facilitation trainings where I'm helping bring that emergent strategy framework to other facilitators. And that feels important. And it feels like this is the right time for it again, because one level I'm trying to travel less and wanting to be able to root home in Detroit more and more. But on the other level, it's just like, that's what's needed. Like facilitating one meeting at a time, is, is not actually meeting the massive need that our movements have for facilitation that comes from an emergency strategy perspective. So this has been, you know, a big change um, yeah. that's coming and we'll see how it goes. Everything is an experiment. Yeah. You were saying about like spreading the love and, and about this, like training other people to be able to do this facilitation and that comes to the point of decentralization, which you emphasize in emergent strategy. And I think is, mm-hmm so important but also very hard to do (laughs) yeah it is and i think it's it's hard because this is like the kind of conundrum of like you want to be in relationship with people like you have to be in relationship with people in order to decentralize in order to really frame you know like be like oh i can trust you know we build trust because we met each other we know each other um and there's a limit to how many people you can meet in a lifetime (laughs) i'm trying to push that limit but and facebook told me that this is you know i've reached that limit but i'm really (laughs) like no you know i i keep coming across people and more and more amazing people um and there's a limit to how many that i can meet so i'm i'm constantly in this place of like well how do i how do i know um, that when someone says, I do what you do, you know, or I do something similar to what you do, how can I trust that? And I think it is a conundrum I don't have a resolution for yet. But these trainings, these offerings have been one of my ways of starting to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, because even if you experience someone once, I trust my gut so much. I trust my first impressions. I trust my system is pretty smart at communicating to me, like there's there's something to trust here. Or there's room reason for caution here. I trust all of that and allowing myself to really like meet people and build enough relationship to know, can I keep extending this trust? That's awesome. Um, I'd love to hear like, how do you define trust? Cause I think that that's another thing that can be a sticking point. I hear people talk about trust in a really transactional way. Yeah. I feel like trust, um, you know, I've been learning a lot about it, but some of the aspects of trust, I feel like trust is when I, I believe that someone's intentions for me are good. Mm-hmm. I believe that someone's intentions for their own life are good, that they are on their way towards safety or on their way towards belonging or on their way towards dignity for themselves. So that feels like a really big part of it is like that I, I have a sense of like, I believe in where it is you're trying to go. Mm-hmm. And even if we're going to get there in very different ways, and even if we disagree on the path, Ultimately, I believe in where you're trying to get to. And this has helped me through many conflicts in my life where I've reached a point where I'm like, I really don't agree with or believe in how that person wants to do that. But 
at the end of the day, I do think they're trying to move towards justice and move towards liberation and freedom. And I wish them peace, right? Even if we're not going to collaborate, like I just wish them success and peace and, and I have goodwill there. And there's not a lot of places where I cannot manage to manifest goodwill, right? Mm -hmm. Even if I can't manifest trust even. Um, but that's one of the things I, I think of as trust. And then I also think it's about communication. Mm -hmm. So I often think about trust as like, I, I am offering trust to you. And what I trust is that we will communicate with each other about the places where we rub against each other or the places where we cause each other harm mm -hmm. and that we will find new ways of being with each other. Um, so as opposed to, I think how a lot of relationships navigate trust, which is like, you have to earn my trust through a series of impossible gauntlets that you have to pass through. <laughs> and then once you have earned it, it's a very fragile thing that you have to like protect with every single action and every single direction of your eyes and everything that happens. And then if you break it once, you can never attain it again. You know, it's just sort of like, well, well what the heck, you know, like why bother? Um, yeah. I really like the relationship anarchy model, which mm -hmm. sort of, it starts from a different place. It really starts from, a space of trust is the starting ground. Just like when we are born as children and we have no capacity to care for ourselves or to do anything for ourselves, trust, we have to trust that the universe is gonna take care of us. I wanna trust in that way. Like that when I come across someone that my starting place is trust and that if trust gets broken, that my first move is not to dismiss or push away, but to communicate, to say, I'm really hurt by this and what can we do about it? and to actually be in that as a practice. Yeah, that's like when you talk about radical honesty and that was something for me that I was like, yes, this, and, and I find that that's a point where I find a lot of people struggle and I find it hard to convey what it looks like to be radically honest in that way, like to be willing to be vulnerable with people uh, yeah. and share their edges and share like where someone, to have conversations where you're like, I'm going to have a conversation that I know might end this relationship or end this project. Yes. But if we don't have it, it doesn't mean that that, that toxicity goes away. You know? Right. Well, and I think that's one of the beautiful things. And I think this is a lesson that I've also gained from Buddhism is that there's that non-attachment piece is actually so crucial to successfully navigating the, the um, challenges of life. Like that if I am clinging to something and I cling to it so much so that I can't say the truth then it becomes a distortion of whatever it, it was anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it no longer is the, the pure relationship or connection or whatever it was that I was valuing and clinging to. It becomes this distorted thing where everyone in it is contorting in some way in order to keep it alive rather than growing into it, growing with it, dancing with it, being in it. And again, you know, I had these moments recently with a few different people in my life where I had to make that choice of saying like something you just did really hurt me. And I think a lot of times, you know, I also have had some history of like coaching people and, and doing stuff like that. And I think it's interesting to navigate, like keeping those boundaries clean too, mm -hmm. is that like when I say, cause you know, I'm also a Virgo with the Scorpio moon. So <laughs> like when I tell someone like, well, you hurt me. Um, you can bet that I have like 20 ideas about what you should do to fix yourself and like not cause me harm anymore. And it's also like stepping back from all of that myth of knowing, you know, whatever makes us think that we actually know what someone else's process is going to be. And 
really stepping back from that and just staying in the vulnerability a little longer. Because all that knowing is trying to protect us from being so vulnerable and it doesn't work, right? <laughs> so there's a way that it's like, oh, I surrender into, you know, like I actually don't know what is going to liberate you. I don't know what's going to liberate us. All I do know is that this is hurting me. Can you hear that this is hurting me? And what are you willing to offer in terms of what you know about that and what you're willing to do about that? And like the, the way forward is always together. So great. So Pleasure or Activism, that's your next book coming out in February next year? Yeah, February, it's true. That's so exciting. So could you give a little rundown about what Pleasure Activism is? Because I think, like, I mean, you've already kind of touched on it through some of the stuff you said. Yeah. So a lot of it is really this idea that oppression has made us think that we don't deserve pleasure or that, you know, that we only some people deserve pleasure and it's a very small portion of society. And so a lot of pleasure activism is just saying it's actually a radical act to reclaim our right to pleasure. When I speak of pleasure, I, I love watching what happens to people's faces when I say <laughs> I'm a pleasure activist, because what you immediately see is kind of how repressive our society is and how much people are longing to talk openly about pleasure and how much people are like, I really want that in my life. And when I say pleasure, I mean joy, satisfaction, happiness, mm -hmm. um, that we should be living lives that feel joyful, that where we feel satisfied on a regular basis and where we feel happy. And not happy because we've eliminated suffering, but happy because we've sort of accepted like suffering is a part of this, but I get to shape so much of it. And how do I shape it in a way that feels good to me and feels good to those around me? So the book is structured as a series of pieces, essays that I've written interspersed with essays from other people and interviews with other people who I get excited by, who I think are doing really groundbreaking work around pleasure. And I think it's going to be a fun ride. It sounds really, really cool. Uh, everybody that I've talked to who has read Emergent Strategy is so jazzed for pleasure activism. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, there's little teasers in there, right? Like there's so much that overlaps around this it's, you know, so much of it is like, how do we train our attention and bring it to where we want it to be? And right now we're in this political environment where our attention is getting grabbed every couple of seconds by things we don't really have that much control over, um, things that really frustrate us and make us feel powerless and disconnected. And so, so much of it is like, how do we train our attention to actually move towards things we can touch, things that we can generate together, things that we can resolve together and practice together, and the realms of sex and the realms of pleasure and drugs and all these things are actually great practice grounds for a lot of that work, right? It's like these are places where folks are like, oh, I, I have learned to say what I need in real time. I have learned to navigate boundaries. I have learned to require consent. I have learned to understand what my limitations are when I'm using something. I have learned all this stuff. So I'm like, oh, how do we apply all that brilliant learning that the body has been doing in pursuit of pleasure to the way we structure our movements and the way we structure um, our shared political spaces. So it's, uh, you know, and it's all very experimental. Every book that I write is sort of like a so far book. You know, I'm like, this is what I've got so far. Here you go. <laughs> um, and then so much more of it comes out in the conversations that follow the release of the book. Yeah. Oh, um, I'd love to hear a bit about your experience of boundary setting and what you've learned about boundaries, because I think that's another thing where uh, there's a sense of mm, 
because of the narratives that we get from patriarchy and capitalism that things like compassion and love are soft or they condone bad behavior. But I was like, no, it's really compassionate to not let people harm you. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think that for me, boundary, like learning to set boundaries has been a lifelong journey. I'm still in it, but it's, gotten to be more and more exciting you know like (laughs) I've gotten to a place now where I'm like "Ooh, I feel a very clear no to that and I'm gonna say no and I'm not gonna feel guilty about that no I'm not gonna keep thinking about that no and I think a lot of times boundaries you know the boundaries that I still set easiest are ones where it's not necessarily that the person is trying to harm me but it's just that what they want is beyond my capacity or beyond my interest which I think sometimes it's hard for people to just say like oh that's cool that you're into that I'm not really into that and so like since Emergent Strategy came out, I've had a million people reach out to me with like, here's an idea that I'm working on or here's something I'm working on. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Go head on with it. But it's also amazing how, how often people will say, I'm working on this thing. Can you work on it with me? And I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm actually working on other projects right now. Or there's a lot of assumption that happens that, you know, we start off this call by talking about like, oh, you're dealing with people who have full lives, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that. I'm like, I have a very, very full life it's not over full, but it's definitely like full of things that I'm working on, projects that I care about, people that I care about. And so a lot of times my no is like, oh, I'm full. My dance card is full. I've reached my capacity. And then sometimes I'll be like, I could be swayed beyond my capacity, but it has to really be something that's like interesting and in my, in my um, line of vision, as it were. And people can't always predict what that is. That's another part of emergent strategy. You talked about the importance of people being really passionate about something and that obligation is not a good motivator. Not at all. And I find that when I'm doing stuff from a place of obligation, it shows in the quality of the work that I do. Whereas if I'm doing something because it's like, this is actually really what I want to be doing with my time, then that also shows. You can feel it in the presence that I bring to it. I think you can feel in the presence anyone brings to it. It's actually like one of my facilitation tools or tricks or games is really like people want to have a conversation you know when people come together there's something they want to talk about there's something they want to be in their room for and if you are not tuned into that then you're wasting their time and when they realize that they're going to rebel in a million different ways mm-hmm. so i'm always trying to figure out and help people figure out like what do these people actually want to talk about what's actually something that they're passionate about, what is the work they're actually here to do on this planet. And there's also something about the preciousness of time. We actually do have limited timelines for our lives. And that's not to create a scarcity so much as a preciousness, right? It's like, oh, this time is precious. And if I come do this project for you because I feel obligated to do it, that's, that doesn't, I don't see how that's going to serve our longest term life goal. <laughs> um, even if in this moment, it it would satisfy you in some way. And I pay a lot of attention to that. And it's meant that my no has gotten very strong. But then my yes has also gotten very clear and strong. And like when I say yes to things, for the most part now, I'm saying, yes, I can actually do that. And I do actually do that. And I follow through, which is much better, much preferred to me than saying yes to stuff that I actually have not that much interest in or just can't do. Um, And then like letting it fall to the wayside which I see happens so much. You know, there's so many people who are just sort of like, oh, maybe. Oh, yeah, you know, I could do it later. Yeah, just keep, you know, ask me next week. I'm like, that's a no. (laughs) Just say no. (laughs) Let it go. Someone else will be happy to do that same thing that you are hedging about. 
Well, I could keep going for ages. This has been lots of fun. I don't know when I was prepping for this. I like I usually write like six to eight questions and I was like 15 questions in and I was like, I need to put the book down and stop writing stuff. But I've come to my final question then, which Great. is what support or guidance would you like to offer listeners who are doing or seeking to do this kind of work? As if mm-hmm. you haven't already offered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think the main thing is to stay in touch with your own passion in the side of it and stay in touch with your impact. Because I feel like if you tend too much towards one or the other of those, that you can kind of get lost from the community. So you can be doing something like you're super passionate about, but it's actually not really needed by your community. Or it's not what they're wanting right now. And I think sometimes that you can put yourself in an uphill battle unnecessarily. But then I also think really paying attention to impact and making sure that it's like, oh, this is what I want to do. It has impact in the world that's really meaningful to the people I care about. And I feel really passionate inside of doing it. That all feels really important to me. I think the other thing is to always be learning, to never think of yourself as a finished project or a finished process. Um, There's always a little more. There's always something else to know and something else to shift in your practice. And that to me is what being alive is about. Like I think that, you know, life ends when it, it's sort of like, oh, I've, I've completed the lessons for this lifetime. And so that to me is, you know, I'm like, oh, when I, I want to feel great about being alive, I take on a new project. Um, I let myself get interested in a new, you know, kind of mushroom, right? <laughs> let myself, like let my interest move out and figure out how can this serve the people that I love and care about and fight for. And, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Humans have been doing this since we came into existence, and we're going to keep doing it long after this generation. So play accordingly. (laughs) That's so great. Oh, thank you so much. This has been delightful. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear how it comes out. I appreciate you. Appreciate your time and the attention you put to this. As well as authoring Emergent Strategy and compiling and co-editing Octavia's Brood, Adrienne Marie Brown is co-host of the podcast How to Survive the End of the World with her sister, Autumn Brown. You can check that out at endoftheworldshow.org. Adrienne's next book, Pleasure Activism, comes out in February 2019. You can learn more about her work in the world at adriennemariebrown.net and visit akpress.org to get a copy of Emergent Strategy. To learn more about my work in the world, visit caitlinschatch.com. Along with more episodes of Everything is Workable, you can find my blog, books, and art. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support the things that I do. This episode of Everything is Workable was made possible through the patronage of Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, and Margaret Prescott, among others. Thank you to Tajai Moore of More Music for the original theme song.